Hello and welcome to uh, episode 23 of the Carlton Podcast of Two Tones, Tony DeVolfo. Greetings Tony, how are you? I'm very well and uh, I'm Tony Moakley, 23. Come on, where do you start? Well, I, I know you're studying, but I can't go past Jakob Vietering, oh, the, the, the keeper of the number 23. Rice. Well, he was a great play, Dean Rice, wasn't he? I, I can still see Tony again. I think it must have been 94. Um, my memory might be playing tricks, but um, could be earlier. Where Dean Rice went over on his knee yeah. at half-time yeah. at the match against Richmond, I think it was, the MCG. And um, I can remember David Park and going over there when the players broke up for half time and saying to Dean Rice, you're the best thing that's happened to Carlton, you know, mm. in the pa- uh, past three years yeah. and, and sort of really gave him that vote of confidence in that in that shocking moment yeah. that, that Dean Rice needed to actually claw his way back, overcome the knee and become part of the, uh, the record-breaking 95 Premiership team. So just goes to show, doesn't it? Uh, all is not lost. It's, it's never as bad as it seems. You know, there's a, there is a way back, isn't there? We owe an enduring debt of gratitude to St Kilda for Dean Rice. Absolutely great player. Great, great Loved footballer. Loved watching him play. Now, if I'm not mistaken, um, Molly Meldrum also wore the 23. Yes, yes. Man who famously or legend hasn't walked it off the street yeah, to... Rode his bike to Princess Park yeah. and, and joined the club. Why doesn't that happen anymore, Tate? Oh, you know, I mean, I'm, I know you ride the push bike in, don't you? Oh, Have you ever had really thoughts to bring your boots with you one day? Or? <laughs> I think we're in enough trouble, Tone. <laughs> I, I was fortunate enough to sit next to, uh, to Molly at a club function once. Fascinating individual, smart man. Yes, and uh, yeah, he was great company. He was a great fellow, and uh, he was a he was a runaway leader, wasn't he? In the Brownlow, um, I think of nineteen eighty seven. Memory serves. Yeah, uh, but unfortunately, you know, the, the he was involved in that accident that um, Peter Motley was lucky to emerge from alive. He and Craig Bradley. Um, no, I think Molly was in the car, oh, right. and uh, but he was a he was a he was an absolute tearaway leader for a period, and it just they caught up with him in the in the end in that year. But he was a fascinating player because um, he was he wasn't a you wouldn't say big frame player, but mm. the thing with Molly that I remember most was that you couldn't lay a tackle on him. Mm. He had this great capacity to shrug tackles, and you know the great Alex Jezelenko will. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little oh, bit later with our special guest. Yes, he was he he was prodigiously strong through the core as well, and, mm. and no one could could bring the bloke down. Um, and that's probably what I remember about Molly. Uh, terrific player, great number twenty three, of course. Now, Tone, uh, we are reviewing round twenty two, the match against the Bulldogs. It was a seventeen point loss at Etihad Stadium, seven seven forty nine to ten six sixty six. You talk about laying tackles. Uh, there are a few that didn't stick on the weekend. There was a couple of heartbreak, well, I don't know, some of the umpiring I, I was left scratching my head at, and, the, it, you know, crucial moments that you could say almost swung the game. I don't want to, you know, I, I, I'm a stuck record with that sort of thing, and I, um, but Carlton were valiant, and they I, I thought we were going to win at one point. Dennis Pagan famously said, Tony, never worry about things you have no control over. Yeah, and it's, it's good probably, advice. It's good advice, it is, it's sage advice from Dennis. Yes. But look, I, I, I feel your pain, I do. I think we were uh, knocked over on the outside though. I think I think the Bulldogs' run um, yeah. was was uh, something that we 
just weren't able to counter. And, uh, you know, seeing Joe Hanson just flying off half-back, um, what a great player he is, mm-hmm. and thinking about Tony, who we didn't have as really bending defenders. Now, Kieran Byrne, in fairness to him, um, is really giving us that run that yeah. we've needed. But then when you think of, you know, the docks hasn't been there all year, nor has Williamson. Tom yeah. Williamson's another rebounding defender. How much better the team, our team, would be with those two players going around. So, look, you know, we, in some respects we're... You know, crawling to the line, you know, there's about eight players that have for some time been done for the year. But in saying that, the players uh, are hanging in. You know, it would be easy to sort of, to for the psyche of the players to be elsewhere at the moment. I suppose you're thinking of Mad Monday and, mm. and trips away. But, but, you know, to Bolton's credit, the players are... Uh, remain committed to the task and let's just hope against the Crows they can finish on strongly because um, we want to go into 2019 with some momentum, Dave. Well, absolutely. Um, with a couple of mentions in dispatches. Ed Curnow, uh thought Marchbank's game was terrific. Some of those intercept marks were fantastic. Superb. Simo, my God, um, that man needs to be captured uh, either bred in captivity or captivity even or or studied because uh, he's a freak. Cripper, uh, absolutely amazing. Do you know that? I mean, the takeaway moment um, Charlie's goal, but the reaction to Tom DeCone in TDK, he did amazing things to the system. And the way he was <laughs> You've mobbed. You've been waiting all week to say that. <laughs> yeah, right. The way he was mobbed was just magnificent, wasn't it? Look, it was a great moment, Tony. No doubt about that with um, TDK, as you said. And uh, I've just actually um, had uh, a lovely conversation with Terry DeConning, Tom's father, who played 33 games, I think it was, at. Uh, at the Western Bulldogs, uh, or Footscray as it was in the 80s, yeah. and um, was a ruckman himself. Um, and uh, he talked about the moment that Tom took that mark early on, that first touch. He said, happened right in front of me, right nice. in front of me. Yeah. And, and, you, and he said... Was it by uh, Lockie O'Brien, was it, or Paddy Dow? Oh, that's sorry, the question I had noticed. I, I can't... might have been Paddy. Yeah. might have been Paddy Dow. And he said, he said, I, I, he said when you're a parent watching on, he said... Um, you 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 know the fear isn't for for your boy getting hurt, it's the fear of him not being able to perform on the yeah. big stage. And he said for him to take that mark early in the game was such a uh, a great thing for the boy's confidence. And he said I was I was watching on intently to see what he was going to do with that kick. Yeah. He said because I knew he, he wasn't going to make the distance, but he he put it to the top of the the goal square, yeah. not the goal line. He said because it's easily uh, yeah, it's yeah. easily um, thwarted, yeah. but to, put it to the top of the square. And he said I've had a look at the replay of that moment, and he said you had Charlie Curno, Harry, and Cripper all flying for that mark. So he said that ball could have been better placed yeah. for those three current players to take that mark. So that was an immediate tick for, for young Tom DeConning. And um, so I have the interview on the current website probably later to, today, Thursday, yep. Tony. Um, yes, yeah, so look out for that one. It was lovely to hear the old man, um, you know, wax lyrical about his boy. Oh, he'd be very proud. As I say, great reaction. Tony, can we get you three, two, ones? I'm just going to remind you, we do have a special guest in today. I'm very excited about this. Um, so you three, two, ones. Then we'll preview quickly the Adelaide game and get to it. Yes. Well, you've mentioned a couple of players in dispatches, Tony, and uh, hard to argue with you. I've, in fact, gone with all defenders this week, uh, and I do apologise to the likes of Kieran Byrne and Jakob Wittering because I thought they were very good. Yeah. However, I've given one vote to the Evergreen, um, the Evergreen Blue, Cade Simpson. Great game from, from Cade. 
little big man of the uh, yeah, AFL. The battleship. He is, yes. Two votes to Caleb Marchbank. Uh, loved his intercepts, yeah. um, and he's really growing into that role soon half back. What a goal to goal line is being developed there, Tony. It's really something the club can work 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 on from here. Very classy stuff. It is. And three votes to another old timer, uh, Dale Thomas. Oh. I thought I thought I thought Dale. Look, congratulations to him. Uh, I think he's committed for another year, if, uh, if I read rightly. And he's been a, he's been a uh, he's had a great year for the club and uh, much maligned. You know, we we, yeah. we talk about you know people always hark back to the Yeti bets. Mm. You know, uh, move and um, no fault of Dale Thomas's, mind you. Um, and he's been he's been superb. He, he waived that long term contract um, in the best interest of the Carlton Football Club, and he's been rewarded with a, another twelve months. And um, all power to him. He's a great fellow around the place too, Dale. If you, I don't know if you've had course of meeting, but he's a uh, he's an absolute ripper. Um, and uh, you know he's got a lot of bubble and yeah, uh, a bit like yourself, Tone. Yeah, um, sure. Very engaging yeah. character. Um, we're on very similar salaries. For what we do too. <laughs> um, can I just say? My just wife, Anna Nord. My, exactly, my wife's favourite player. I hear a lot about Daisy Thomas at home. Um, can I just say, is there is there a match stat, an official match stat for avoiding a thrown bottle of water or whatever it was? <laughs> well, you know, just well, credit to Daisy for that. Was the sixth sense? You know, I've been in that situation actually. The first day I started as a cadet journalist at Truth newspaper. I had to walk through to the copy desk, which is at the back of the building in West Melbourne, at the back of the house of Stoush down there, Festival Hall. Yeah. And I remember I walked in, I was fresh out of school, and I had a, I had a, a tie done up and I had a three-piece suit, and I was walking to the desk past all these reprobates in this building, and I could sort of remember, hello, there's something coming my way, and I swung my head back just in time to see a coffee cup <laughs> fly past my nose and smash... <laughs> Against the wall, and one of the sub editors was having a, a row with one of the journalists. And I can remember that by the time I got to the end of my desk, I undid the top button of my tie and I threw that away. And uh, I knew I just entered the school of hard knocks tone, and I thought I'd finished school. You know, I just, I just was out of school, but uh, that was my first experience in, uh, with the Fourth Estate. Um, uh, welcome to journalism, son. Yeah, exactly. I think, well, Daisy probably had a bit of uh, experience. Uh, dodging uh, glass at the old Collingwood Social Club um, <laughs> post-match functions. Uh, no doubt a Bulldog supporter, Tone, I, I dare say. Oh, was of course, yes, come on. Dispatched the missile? No, exactly. If it was a Carlton supporter, I would expect at the very least it would have been a, uh, a, a Waterford Crystal flute or something like that. <laughs> now, uh, uh, the final match of the year against Adelaide, Adelaide have not had the season they expected to have. Um, no. I, I, you know what? It, do you put it down to that crazy pre-season... Uh, camp, Those maybe? lazy, crazy, hazy days of summer tone at Adelaide. I, I don't know what was going on up there. Um, too smart by half, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really has um, permeated the whole place, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, they didn't seem to recover from from that debacle at the Adelaide players. Some semblance of order was brought back, probably you know, in the you know second third of the season, mm-hmm. but. Probably the damage that was done, yeah. it's fair to say. They've got back on the horse. They seem to be uh, travelling a little bit better in recent weeks. But, yeah, I mean, reigning grand finalists, you would have thought they'd be featuring the um, mm. September action. So, you know, something's gone awry. But um, they'll be a formidable opponent oh, <laughs> next there's, week. Yes, there's no Just doubt the same. Uh, 7.25pm Saturday at Etihad Stadium, last time we met. 
was round seven. It was in Adelaide at uh, the beautiful Adelaide Oval. 50 point, 55 point loss to the Baggers. Um, uh, in, in terms of injuries, uh, Pusser Graham uh, has a fitness test. And Garlett, his uh, shoulder means he's out for the week, but he will be back for the start of the preseason. Uh, uh, they have a potent forward line. That's going to be the thing we have to shut down. Yeah, so I, I suppose the Texans still out through yeah. suspension, isn't he? So there's probably one player that uh, we don't have to worry about uh, up front. But look, you know, as I said earlier, um, Tone, um, in terms of the Western Bulldogs encounter, all our backs uh, performed admirably, I thought, at the weekend. And um, look, you know, we've talked about declining and, uh, you know, we see the the ongoing progress of Harry Mackay and, and Charlie. Um, I think that's what we take away from mm. the year. You know, the, 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 these young blokes are getting games, uh, more games, and, and with every quarter, it seems, they seem to be really, you know, emerging as serious top-end talent. Um, so, so I think that's uh, when we reflect on, you know, the, the season that was, yes, in terms of ladder position, it could always be better. But there have been little wins along the way. And, mm. and um, you know, I think Brendan Bolton from day one always said that you have to look for these little, little, little wins, I suppose, as mm. they are on the field and the fortunes of the young players as they come through. And, and I suppose that's what we take away most from 2018, the emergence of some of these, you know, these high-end uh, draftees that are obviously going to be there for the long haul for the Carlton Football Club. Uh, indeed, Tone. And look, um, kind of, I don't know, uh, emblematic of the horror run of injuries, um, ASOS, he is retiring. Um, we didn't get to see him, see him at his full magnificent potential, um, or enough of it, I don't think. I think what we saw was enough to get us very excited. But... Um, uh, we wish him all the very best. I'm glad you brought up his name because um, I, when I think of Alex Silvani, there's a, I think of the game against Sydney, mm. which I think was his first game for Carlton, where he absolutely pants Buddy Franklin yes, at the MCG. Did. Do you remember that game? Yes. And uh, it's very rare that you see a play of Lance Franklin's uh, capability um, humble the way he was that day. And, and it's just such a great shame that... Um, that the, the, the great strength of Alex Silvani, his ferocious competitive nature, mm. has probably in fact brought about his undoing. Because um, even at Fremantle, I mean, I, th I think he only played 60 games there, mm. and, and, and uh, even less here at Carlton, but, but there was a player that truly led by example. Yeah. And, and uh, if I could be so bold, Tony, there was a, 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 a tweet sent out by Matt DeBoer, an old teammate at Frio, who said this this week of Alex Silvani, one of the toughest, most brutal and underrated defenders to play will be successful at whatever he does next as long as he ditches the trackies. <laughs> Enjoy the burgers, Rass, and four-wheel drive adventures in retirement, mate. Now, Rass, he, he is spelled W-R-A-S-S-E, and I thought it was a, a, an error on Twitter. I thought he meant rats until I Googled Rass and found out it was a, a, a most delightful-looking fish. But uh, there's an in-joke there because Devore and Alex Silvani go fishing ah. and Rass, while it looks good, is absolutely shocking eating. <laughs> and apparently Alex has got a great habit of hauling the Rass in. So um, I dare say there's going to be a lot of um, fishing expeditions uh, happening now that Alex Silvani's retired. I just bumped into him. Uh, he came back to 
for the last training session to watch the boys yeah. go through their paces. He's uh, more than likely heading back to WA in the new year with his wife, who is yeah. West Australian, if just had a little daughter. Oh, yeah. But he has told me that he will be there uh, on the terraces supporting the Blues whenever they're, they're uh, on the Nullarbor on their way to Perth. So um, a great, great competitor, yeah, sadly lost to the game. Yeah, he really is. Um, I, uh, the, the handful of games he had for us were a joy and a delight to watch. And, uh, uh, you know, on one, one level, I'm gutted that he's going. So mm. um, all the very best in retirement, ASOS. Now, our guest, Tone, has been very patient. He's brought in one hell of a book. What a tome. Look you, at that. Well, you, the book is called The Norm Smith Medalists. Why on earth would that be of interest to the Carlton podcast, I ask you? Well, I tell you, because there are some magnificent stories about men who have not only worn the navy blue, but brought great honour to it on the biggest game of the year. Dan Eady is its author. He joins us now. G'day, Dan. G'day, uh, Tone and Tone. It's uh, great to be here. Well, Dan, it's a bit hard to know where to start. Um, I mean, the North Smith Medal is now, what, 40 years old? Um, and, of course, uh, the great Wayne Harms was the first recipient of the North Smith Medal. Look, it's hard to know where to begin and end with this interview with you today. Um, but maybe you should open by just talking about the, the exercise itself of sourcing all the North Smith Medalists, how long the book has been in the pipeline, you know, and where your research actually took you. Yeah, oh, thanks. Yeah, no, it's it's been fascinating. I like all of us. You grew up idolising the feats of the players on Grand Final day, and uh, as a kid, I was always fascinated by it. And uh, the Norm Smith medalists, uh, yeah, used to uh, you know after the game, you'd go out in the backyard and try and emulate whoever won the Norm Smith uh, against your brothers in the backyard. So that was always fun. So always had an interest, the fascination in the medal, and then I. Proposed the idea to my publisher Jeff Slattery uh, a couple of years ago, and there's a few too other too many projects on the go. I think so. It was put on hold, and then Wayne Harms had that shock heart attack last year, and you know, I think that sort of rejigged uh, Jeff's memory, and he thought we better get onto this because uh, being the first one, we want to make sure that Harms he gets well, and we can uh, have a chat to him. So it really grew from there. So it probably took me twelve months uh, from when Jeff said get onto it. So uh, I there's thirty seven winners and Morris Starting with the number thirty seven. Exactly, mm, yeah. Nice. And the connection is remarkable because Harmsey's uh, great uncle was Norm Smith, so um, he was presented the award by Norm's widow, Marge. So the real family connection. And then Peter Smith, the son, uh, presented it to Bruce Dool in nineteen eighty one. So there's been a real family affair. So Started there, and as I said, there's 37 winners. Morris Rioli is the only one who's passed away, 1982, against the Blues. And um, so I got to about 26 of the 36, and there's a handful that were just impossible to tie down. Uh, Michael Long and Gary Ablett Sr., and obviously Bruce still never speaks to anyone. So uh, I got to most, and the ones I didn't get to, I interviewed their coaches or their teammates and piece their stories together that way. So amazing journey, yeah. That's an amazing journey. Just on, on the late Morris Rioli, did did he leave anything behind on the record in terms of winning the North Smith? Was there records you were able to draw on there or not? Yeah, there's an interview he did with Rhett Bartlett for great history that Rhett put together on the Tigers. Um, so I was able to draw a little bit from that. But uh, Phil Egan played with um, played with Morris at uh, at 
Richmond, so he he had they became best friends, and so I got to uh, have a good chat with uh, with him about that, and also um, a handful of other guys who played with or against him, including uh, Francis Burke coached him, and Mel Brown coached him over in WA. So uh, yeah, got some good stories on Morris. Um, we're going to talk mainly, obviously, about Carlton players who mm, uh, got it. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about David Rhys Jones, who got his in 1987. What, what were his recollections? Yeah, they were pretty, pretty sharp. He he uh, he played on Gary Ayres in the '86 Grand Final, and Ayres he won the Norm Smith. So he, was, uh, he had a bit to um, bit to bit of ground to make up the next year. Uh, Bruce Dill's last game too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, played on Dunstall, Dunst- I think, that day, and they got refused done and- to be carried off. Dan Bruce right? walked up the race. He would not be carried off. He was so disappointed. He was a, a proud man. Yeah, yeah, well, that sums up what he was like, doesn't it? So. Uh, Reese, no, Reese was really good. He uh, he found out he was playing on Dermot Brereton maybe a couple of days before the game, or even the night before. It was uh, Robert Walls left it to the last minute to tell him that he's on the the biggest <laughs> name in the game. So, and I mean, you guys have probably watched it a hundred times, but he was absolutely outstanding that mm-hmm. day, and he kept uh, Dermy goalless for the only time all year, which was remarkable. Dermy, yeah, it was a really young characteristic. Performance by Dermy, but uh, every time it hit the ground, Reese was there to just take it away, and he, he's outstanding. So, so do, does a, an interview with Dermy actually feature in the book? No, no. Uh, the guys I interviewed, each chapter that I interviewed, the guys that's told in their words. Yep. Um, and the ones that I couldn't interview, then I tell it as an actual story, I guess, as such, but and tie in the interviews here and there. But so uh, with Reese, uh, he was very forthcoming with his. Uh, with these um, memories, we met at uh, Mill Hannah's Cafe in uh, Brunswick Fitz, Street. Fitz, yeah, yes. we met there, and a uh, bit hard to hear the audio on the takes. It was a pretty loud cafe in there, but we had a good chat, and uh, he sent me a good photo of him with the book the other day, which was great. So, he, he, Did he lend you the upstairs room? There's a good room up, up above no, the fence. No, we sat down up. the bottom. Oh, yeah, we didn't yeah, get yeah. the... Right. Yeah, some the, uh, massive <laughs> mega deals have been hatched up there. Is that right? Yeah, it's oh, a good spot. The, the 87 Players reunion was there. Was there? Oh, oh, now... Right. Um, <clears throat> You, you mentioned Dermy having a shocker. We know he's, and he was a big occasion player. He's one of the game's absolute all-time greats. But was there a, a common thread um, that comes through with Norm Smith's medalists? Was it just something that happened to gel on the day where they just everything came together and they ended up playing a great game? Because we know great players can put in bad performances. Um, uh, like Dermy is uh, the example I just mentioned. Mm. Um, was there a common thread uh, amongst players? They're all very. Proud and driven players, anyway. I mean, most didn't go into it thinking they were going to be best on ground. There's only two blokes who said to me that during the games that they won it in, they felt they were going to win it. And Can we uh, have those names? Yeah, yeah, one did was, one play for Carlton. One played for Carlton in about '95. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like <laughs> I, I nearly it fell was, off my chair. <laughs> great Greg Williams and Cyril Rioli as well just said, though, you know, I felt it was a good chance to win it. So, but no one really went in saying I'm going to win it at the start of the day. I mean, Kevin Bartlett won the second one in 1980, and he said when the game was over, I didn't even know there was a medal. Like, it was still so wow. early days. So uh, most were shocked when they were told that they were about to win it. Um, when the AFL official comes up and speaks to them before the podium. and uh, So most were shocked. But uh, as you know, with all those Carlton blokes, driven, big game performers, proud, don't want to let their team down. And so uh, I think that's probably what 
what the similarity, you know, although yeah. although the Bulldogs, um, Jason Johannesson a couple of years ago said before the game, uh, when they were all warming up out on the MCG, he laid down on the turf and said, I, I got myself a tan. That was his uh, pre-game uh, <laughs> psych-up. So they're all very different characters, that's for sure, but the drive to want to perform. Uh, Dan, a few little observations. When you talk about Williams, I don't know if you had an opportunity to see it. It's only just gone up, but there's a great um, a little bit of video uh, on the Carlton FC website at the moment, driving with Sam Pang, and Diesel's, Diesel's behind the wheel. <laughs> and he talked, there's a moment about him talking about his possessions, and he, he touches in footy, you know, where he said that, you know, if I got to the third quarter with 35 touches... He said, I made a point of getting 45. He said, mm. possessions meant everything to him. And, and so he, he said maybe that was what separated him. He said because a lot of players probably 35 touches mm. at three-quarter time sort of rest on their laurels a bit. But yeah. he, went, he went again. So it's just great, you know, and you've touched on that in your answers earlier about the psychology of these guys and the mindset and how driven they were. There's another uh, just question about... Uh, Bruce Dool's um, win of the Norm Smith in '81. Dan, uh, uh, interestingly enough, that came on Craig Davis, uh, who himself was a former Carlton player, playing for Collingwood that particular day. But Bruce, um, yeah, had a pretty good day in '81. Yeah, it's terrific. Just quickly on Williams, uh, Greg. There's a quote in the book that says Greg said, uh, "I was all about my possessions and about checking the newspaper to make sure I had the most." So he was. That was a really internal drive, which I'd never heard from another player. No. Normally they wouldn't talk about that. Yeah. But, so that and, was a, and a modest figure too. I can remember when his own, his own tome, Greg mm-hmm. Weaver, the Greg Weaver story, there's a chapter in there which is headlined, How I Bagged My Second Brownlow Medal. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that if you want a couple. Well, but he almost a, won three, he, let's and be he, well, yeah. yeah, well, let's not go yeah, there. Which, which, which is covered in the book, isn't it? The, mm, the 44 I, possession game that didn't get him a Brownlow vote. And a big yes. hello to John Russo. Oh, yes, boy. I had to... Uh, I'll, uh, I'll admit that there's some stuff edited out that we would have loved to have put in that Greg was happy for me to put in, but maybe off air. Regurgitate that stuff off the cutting room floor, off Dan. Air, Go for your I might, life. I might get in a bit of trouble uh, with the law if I uh, try and accuse the people of uh, what Greg <laughs> said. But just on Dooley, yeah, he uh, very he quite the opposite of uh, Greg, really, wasn't he? It wasn't about <clears throat> stats and it wasn't about pumping himself up, I guess, oh. or... Um, he was such a unique character, and you speak all his teammates speak so fondly of him, whether they played one game or three hundred games. Um, as you know from the Larrikins and Legends book, I wrote that uh, the the players and the coaches just adored him, even though he never said a word to anyone. Just the most reliable player, and he was Mister Reliable in that eighty-one Grand Final. He was indeed. Can I ask you, Dan, given your research, which has been quite extensive, obviously, and you've looked at, at, at all the winners in totality, I suspect you've probably had occasion to review videos of, of most of the grand finals. Can you say in your own heart of hearts that, by and large, the selectors got each winner right? It's an interesting question, that one, and uh, I certainly don't want to do an injustice to the ones who, to everyone who won it. I watched every game. Uh, fortunately, they're all in the DVD era, so... Mm. Studied every game and uh, every possession, and um, and just and it's interesting. There's some that are probably questionable. Uh, I, I won't name those, mm. but uh, there's some where you, you look you name at clubs. Uh, I better not. <laughs> <laughs> I better not. Although I will say, uh, I will say, 
as interest as brilliant as Morris Rioli was in 1982. Uh, There's a couple of Carlton blokes uh, who were pretty good as well. We won't name Wayne Johnston or Ken Hunter or anyone, but uh, <laughs> yeah. a couple of guys. But uh, I, what I did, it's a, it's really the, we can get the Brownlow Medal vote tallies for every year going back to 1924. The Norm Smith. You can only get the official vote tallies since 2003, I reckon. The AFL does not have any tallies from 79 through to... So I know all the judges for each year, but I don't know, and most couldn't remember who they voted for. But So what I did for the early ones was I went through all the newspapers and selected, might have been the Herald, and you'd put their votes in for the day and uh, to show a rough idea of who were the good players by those judges. And then I put the official votes in for the more recent guys. And, uh, yeah, there's a few that it's quite interesting that show. I, I don't think Kevin Bartlett was in the top two or three in the in that newspaper's votes and a few others as well. So it was interesting. So speaking about that, leads to my next question. I, I, I suspect from the period 1966 to 78 that seven basically covered it, all of those grand finals. And so they're still on record. And yet that's that black hole where the, the, the Norm Smith is not presented. Uh, my reason for this question is that last week at the 68 reunion, we, Tony and I had the great pleasure to interview Gary Crane, who is generally considered to have been the best player of field in that 68 grand final. And I think Tony may have asked him the question, what are your thoughts on retrospective Norm Smith's being presented? And he said, wouldn't that be lovely? He said, but I doubt that it would happen. Do you feel that there is scope for retrospective Norm Smith medals to be awarded to players in that particular era that have played well in grand finals? You think with the TV vision that would help. I think Norm Smith died in 73, I think. So I wonder whether they'd only go back to when he passed away. You know, like the John Coleman medal only starts... How far back does it go? I think it only starts when he... From when he, from Don't when he, maybe, or they might have retrospective back to when he was playing. I'm not sure, but there's there's a couple of other awards where that's the case, where they only start from when that mm. person passed on or whatever. Yep. So I wonder whether they would go further back than seventy three ish. Yes, um, but it'd be great. I think they have done lookbacks on uh, in the Herald Sun and a couple of things where they have gone back to 70 grand final and all yep. those ones and done their official votes if you want to call it it would be good though that maybe we should champion that because uh, i know yeah. brent croswell would be happy uh, yes. if we uh, if we did that <laughs> very um, true i think there's something to be said for that um from your point of view we're speaking to dan eddie by the way who's and the book is uh, the norm smith medalists is there one game that you think would would stand head and shoulders maybe above others or or as first amongst equals as just an incredible individual performance that um, contains elements, you know, uh, maybe a player that just rejuvenated his team when the team needed to be hauled across the line? Or is there one individual performance you think kind of stands out? Yeah, well, it's not Carlton, but I certainly... Gary Ablett in 89, I think that that stands out at the top of the... There's some great performances. I mean, Simon Black had 39 touches in 2003 and... Um, Tony Shaw was brilliant in 1990 and uh, I think Harmsey turns the match in 79 mm. uh, he's he's too humble to admit that he reckons he only got the medal because of his family connection and I doubt whether that would have even known his connection at the time when they mm. voted um, and 
I've as, you know, studied the game and there's no question that he turns the momentum of the game, a bit like Billy Duckworth at Essendon in 84. They, they, didn't, they may not have had the most stats, but they had the impact on the yeah. day. So they, those things stand out. And it's funny, Dan, that if you look at Wayne Holmes in 82, that pivotal moment where they put him back onto KB, who was looking threatening early. Yeah. And... And Wayne Harms really negated Bartlett's influence. And you think back to that game, three-goal game is a good game. It was tight. That you know he 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 stands pretty tall in in big games, doesn't he? W Harms, and um, oh, he was amazing. a great player in that one. Yeah, amazing. You, you look at him today, and he's the most unlikely character to to have been <laughs> such a champion. But yeah. I remember Parko saying when he first got to Carlton in the early eight, in '81, and he said, "I went to the first training out at uh, Aberfeldy." Track out there at uh, Cross Keys, near, or wherever yeah, it was. near there, and he said, I, "I walk in, and there's Harms and Sheldon, and they're leaping over things the size of them, and they're doing all these acrobatic." He, he was blown away by how acrobatic Harms was and how athletic. And Harms, he'd probably laugh today if we uh, said you were an athletic player because he, he doesn't he doesn't look at it anymore. But he he was, and he was. Brilliant. Uh, he, was a, he was a match winner, wasn't he? He was. He was, yeah. he was. I was probably a bit unfair with that question earlier about, you know, which players you think, you know, may not have been worthy winners. So I'll phrase it another way. Who are the, un- who are the unluckiest players, do you think, not to have won a, um, a Norm Smith? Jason Graham in 2009. He's the only player from the votes that we know, anyway, who tied first but lost on a countback to uh, Paul Chapman. Now... What's interesting about that is Chapman got... There's five judges, and Chapman got three three votes, so he got nine votes. But Graham got votes off all five judges. Just It added up to nine, so he didn't have as many three votes. So he actually missed out, um, even though he got more judges thought he played well. Yes. So that was, really, that was probably the stiff one, I reckon, where he'd be, he'd be feeling a bit... They lost the game as well, so he's probably yeah. a bit... So they'll, and, they'll, do, they'll award two Brownlows, but not two Norm Smiths. Yeah, I wonder whether down the track they'll do that one, because... Yeah. Oh, they should, yeah. And, and, and interestingly, you talk about Ablett uh, as probably the greatest performance of any Norm Smith medalist in, in a team that lost too, it should be mm. said, and the same with Morris Rioli. Do you have a view on that? I mean, should, should the Norm Smith medalist feature in the winning team or are you quite happy with the way they've got it? I think if, they're, if it's a close... You know, there isn't an absolute standout. I've got no problem with it. I thought there was standouts in 82, and that's, again, Morris did some great things, but he did the great things when Hunter was off the field, knocked out, and then yes. he came back on twice. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so it was... And same with... Uh, like, Ablett's had to win it. He just had to. Yeah. Was, even though Hawks controlled most of the day, he had to win it. Um, so there's a, a couple like that, but the Bucks... Nathan Buckley winning in 2002. They just lost to Brisbane. Vossi, Michael Voss had a great last couple of minutes and the judges had already made their votes by then and Bucks beat Vossi by a couple of votes, I think. So that was a controversial one, but Bucks played a great game, so it's not like he shouldn't have. And Juddy got it for West Coast in 2005 when they lost to Sydney mm. by it's, four points. Well, I would imagine that the theme amongst North Smith medalists in losing teams would be that they, no matter how proud they are to actually have the medal, they would willingly trade it in a heartbeat for the... For the premiership medallion. For sure, and that's that's why it's probably a bittersweet memory. I mean, Buck said he only talks about it when someone like me brings it up to him and uh, he had a bit of a laugh, but he, he took it off when he was walking off the podium. He took it off his neck just because of it wasn't something to celebrate at the time, and they, they look back now and they're very proud that they've got it, but there's a bittersweet 
things. It'd be interesting with Maurice Rioli because, unlike Juddy, he never played in a premiership, and you know, so they, whether they viewed that higher, Byron Pickett won his in two thousand four, and he just he, he's so thrilled even today to have won it really. And David Rhys Jones, I won't swear on air, but David Rhys Jones says that he he was the one. Uh, He'd be just known as a as a as a D head who didn't uh, who got suspended twenty five times as opposed <laughs> to being a Norm Smith medalist. So that's significant for these guys. Uh, it's huge, it's even huge. whether you won or lost. Yeah, Dan, it's been fascinating to hear you um, uh, relate tales um, so extensively in terms of your research for the Norm Smith medal, um, the medalist, the book you've written. But I know that you have been working on another project and um, this really uh, is a quite incredible project. You're researching the life and times of the great Alex Jezelenko. Um It's hard to know where to begin and, and, and end with, with Jezza. I, I have to commend you um, for, for taking this on because um, as a great current supporter, it was always a pipe dream I had to get Jezza's story down, and he was always reluctant to do it. But look, can you talk a little bit about how how this came about, and, and then we'll talk a little bit about the story that you're, you're uncovering along the way. Yeah, thanks, mate. Yeah, no, it's been great having your help along the way too, because I know it's so, so close to your heart and to the club's heart, the great man. So I've been very lucky... Um, Certainly no mention of books at this stage. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to soften him up, uh, the great Jezza, one day. But he's at least allowed me to uh, interview him a few times for the for the sake of a university thesis. So uh, been very lucky. And his family, his daughters, Kate and Sally, have been involved. And the family history is just fascinating. And yeah, I, I just took the idea that I wanted to do Jezza uh, as a as a PhD to Federation University and. Uh, the man I spoke to there, Keir Reeves, is a massive Carlton fan. He, he probably could have written it himself, so he uh, he jumped at that. So I got a three-year scholarship to research that. I'm in the third year now and uh, really delved into his migrant journey, which I knew nothing about. And uh, there's a movie just in that, I think. It's pretty amazing, as you know. So, And then everything that happens after that is just the bonus, the, the fact that his family survives through the Europe period under Hitler and Stalin and all the horrors of that and miss a couple of boats coming out to us to different countries and then the third boat came to Australia so we sh- we shouldn't have even got him so we're, <laughs> we're pretty lucky. It's absolutely staggering you know and um, I, 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 I reading between the lines in terms of the extracts you've sent me it seemed that um, that Alex's um, you know mother and father for most of their lives perhaps all of their lives basically bottled the stories up that they really <laughs> talked about their their lives in Europe and yet when you read as you've articulated what was happening in Europe at that particular time you can understand why they would have bottled it away it was the the horrors that they must have encountered were were unspeakable weren't they yeah it's hard to imagine and as a researcher I was fortunate that uh Alex's oldest daughter Sally uh, had a few chats with her nan while she was still alive, and every they'd start to delve, just discuss a little bit of what went on. And uh, as soon as Alex entered the room, she'd change the subject to cooking or something, you know, like she just did not want her children. I haven't. I've been trying to track down Jez's sister Larissa, and I, I hope I can still do that. And if I can, maybe she spoke with her mum about it. But certainly, Alex, uh, she never 
gave much away at all, hardly anything. So, and looking into the history of it is just um, horrific how they survived through being starved and forced to flee and in prison. Jez was born in a prison camp in Austria in Salz, beautiful Salzburg. Uh, you know, even when he comes out to Australia at three and they move, they go to Canberra, he's in a camp environment for another three or four years. So his first six or seven years of his life are in a sort of camp settlement environment. So it's hard to relate to that. Yes. And then the the good story is, though, that in Canberra, he, he, he seems to be accepted into the fold from the outset. He, he, he assimilates really well. Uh, he, he He's taken by his mates at school. And, of course, from day one, you've identified that he, he just excelled in sport, whatever it was, he, he was able to turn his hand to it and he was on another level, wasn't he? Yeah, his friends say the lucky bugger, he, he got all the... <laughs> so we'd be busting our backsides at practice or whatever and he'd just be doing it with ease. So it just, yeah, remarkable how it all just came to him. We could, he could leap doing the high jump really well and he, could, he couldn't swim. They said he couldn't swim very well, but he tried hard and, and got better at it, but he wasn't a great swimmer, but... He could. Uh, he was a. They reckon he could have played uh, basketball for Australia. An Australian player said, "There's three blokes in this team here that could go on and play for Australia," and he was one of them. Uh, he, they reckon he could play soccer. He represented uh, soccer team, and his his season or two playing rugby union for the St Edmunds College in Canberra. They'd just give the ball to him and say go, and he if they got forty points, he got thirty five of them. Like he was that, and that's where he learned his fend off and. And that strength in legs to break tackles and stand up. One yeah. time before Dustin Martin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And uh, so he learned all that stuff, and his jumping for marking all comes from that high, that uh, high jump and the athletics. He was good at the hop, step, and jump and the long jump. So he just had that in him. He he puts it down to simply DNA, but countless hours of just practicing without realizing he's practicing, I reckon, played a big part in that. But uh, and there's one more myth, mate, that he. Uh, all the records say that he didn't touch a football until he was 14, but he, he I've found out that he was doing it by 12. So uh, even that's still late for you and me. We, we were doing it probably at two. But uh, so he's um, he. But there is there is a few little myths that go on around his uh, development that uh, we've been able to find out. Which is so you and I had ten years head start <laughs> to it. We were still <laughs> we were still proud to catch Grab his bootlaces, really. <laughs> um, Dan, then you talk about his time at Eastlake, you know, and the successes at Eastlake, and again, obviously how as his um, time in football uh, uh, continued, he really started to come into prominence. And it's fascinating to learn of the machinations which led to him actually coming to Carlton. By rights, he shouldn't have been at Carlton, should he? No, if North Melbourne had have done it the right way, it's and, and Alan Aylett still bemoans the fact that he uh, they probably tried to pursue him. I, I was spoken with a couple of his teammates from Eastlake who remember the first time North approached him. They were on a end of season trip at the Gold Coast and. They went about it the wrong way, and uh, Jez had just signed the form so they'd nick off, but not realising what it was. But the form was null and void. But I, I thought then Carlton must have done the honourable thing and got him the right way. But as it turns out, uh, they went about it. Uh, it was a bit of in the know who you knew, and uh, I know there was some heavy people up in Parliament, like Don Chip and uh, Robert Menzies was a Carlton man as well, and John Nichols said he spoke to 
Don about getting him down here, but he was also what George Harrison, the guys did to manipulate the rules a little bit to secretly get him, and then the rules came in, and a bit like North with their ten year rule, where they were able to they got a bit of forewarning what was going to happen, and yeah, that'll be all in the story. But um, again, uh, it's a it's it's remarkable that he ends up at Carlton, and he, I mean he, he, the person he asked was um, his wife Anne's or then his girlfriend Anne's yeah future father-in-law and he was an Essendon supporter and he so he had every chance to say go to the Bombers so that could have been different again and it was probably lucky that Tom Carroll left Carlton in 62 three-ish somewhere then and uh, there was that gaping hole in the forward line and uh, you know so that's why his father-in-law said go to Carlton because you'll get a game in that forward line because they don't have anyone. So Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Um, we, we, again, talk for hours about Alex Jeselenko and your research is quite meticulous and, and, and extensive, extensive and I know you're still ploughing on. But have you um, researched enough, Dan, um, to uh, articulate your thoughts on who Alex Jeselenko is? Like, as a, as a person, as a player, you know, if you had to describe it, what would you say? He just loved playing with his... Before Ron Barassi probably influenced him, certainly at Eastlake, he just loved playing with his mates. He was reluctant to even play senior footy until his mates were allowed to play with him. You know, like, he he just he just enjoyed playing. He liked being out of the house playing, and that followed through until even his first... When he started at Carlton, that was more his philosophy, I think, and then Barassi said, no, we, I do things a bit different here, and... Uh, so, but even then, after the first twelve months, Brass and him came to an agreement that he shouldn't be overtrained, and uh, uh, some of his teammates joked that that might have been a bit of teacher's pet stuff. But uh, it, he knew what worked for his body, and he just this is probably like Buddy Franklin today. You just you know how your your body works, and for him that that worked for him. But uh, in terms of a bloke, it's interesting. He is a hard person to. To know, and you'd you'd probably found that too in all your dealings as well. But his daughter Kate says, by far and above the nicest man I've ever met in my life. Like just, it's really humble, quiet. You go to his house for an interview, and there's not you wouldn't know he played footy. There's not one picture, not one bit of memorabilia, nothing up uh, in the house. So he's very humble. And as we as we touched on with his family coming from nothing, I don't think possessions and pumping yourself up and you know he, he was never comfortable in the media he did it and he had periods where he probably made good money out of doing it but uh it wasn't something he championed himself I imagine Anne probably pushed that more than than Alex and having Mike Williamson as a friend as well and uh today he's more Barry Gill he's great mates with Barry Gill and they go off all around Australia on fishing trips and they'll go to a spot where no one else is, you know. They just he just loves to get away, and whether they probably have a few more cans than they do catch fish. But you know, Barry says he's a terrible fisherman, but uh, <laughs> but it's such special times. So he's that is probably where he's at now, and was, it's great that he turns up to a few functions now for the Carlton people. It's fantastic, but um, very humble, quiet man. Even though he's the you know the superstar as such, you know. So it's an interesting conundrum that. With that personality, it's right, Dan. You know, he asked Jesu himself, and he probably wonder what all the fuss is about. But you know, for someone like myself, the mere mention of his name evokes so many, uh, you know, great memories, and it, it sort of 
tingles up the spine just mm. thinking about the, the player he was and, and you know the prodigious um, ability he had as a player and mm. um, one of the all time greats in league football that is that is for sure and and look all power to you for what you've done uh, in, in it's an important story um, it's a it's a it's a great European story it's an even mm. greater Australian story and uh you know, if ever uh, the the thesis is available uh, for for us, we would love to to absolutely, absolutely reproduce it and yeah, with definitely. the great men's consent, of course. Yeah. That might be a bit harder. <laughs> but uh, but look, Dan, thanks very much for for sharing sharing your, your memories of the process in both the Norm Smith medalist book, which is a great tome, and I'm I'm really happy that it's selling well, and, of course, the story of the great Alex Jezelenko. I'm sure there's a few more books in the pipeline for you. Um, there is. There's a, there's a lot of Carlton personalities we still need to yes, write about, don't well, we? Well, that's it. That's <laughs> it, you know, and uh, no, so keep at it. Thanks again for coming in. Always great to reminisce with you, and... Um, and all power to you for the uh, the research ahead. Yeah, I appreciate the support of Carlton Footy Club. It's it's great that I can help tell a few of their great stories. You know, and there'll be a few more soon with Crips and a few of those guys, hopefully as well. The book is the Norm Smith Medalist: The Players Who Delivered on Football's Grandest Stage. Uh, it's forwarded by Greg Williams, um, who uh, whose modesty shines through. <laughs> um, it's by Dan Eddy. He's been our guest today. Thank you so much for coming in, Dan. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. Great Always fun. great to have you. Uh, you're a friend of the podcast, and we look forward to having you back in uh, season 2019. Tone, go Blues uh, against Adelaide. We expect a, a good turnout for the last game of the season, hopefully a win. And uh, we want to make um, Bryce Gibbs and Sam Jacobs bitterly regret their decisions. Um, and we and don't will... forget the little bloke in the forward pocket. Oh, either. yes, that's true. Oh, God. <laughs> Anyway, but uh, we will catch you next week for the last episode of The Two Tones. Where we will uh, hopefully have in the studio our, uh, our winner, The Two Tones medal for 2018. I wonder who that could be. <laughs> anyway, uh, go Blues and we'll catch you next week. Bye-bye.